Hello, and welcome to the Neshama Project podcast, where we explore spiritual tools for human thriving. I'm Rabbi Ben Newman. Today we have a very special guest, that being Yossi Chayas, professor of Jewish mysticism. He's the Sir Isaac Wolfson Professor of Jewish Thought at the University of Haifa. He's the author of Between Worlds, Dybbuk's Exorcists, and Early Modern Judaism. He's co-editor of The Visualization of Knowledge in Medieval and Early Modern Europe. And he's the director of the Ilanot Project, which we'll be discussing today. He's also the author of a new book, on the subject of Kabbalistic trees, or Ilanot, ha- Ilan HaKabali, the Kabbalistic tree uh, that just was released through the Pennsylvania State University Press. And so in honor of this month of Shvat, which is the month when Tubi Shvat happens, the month when we celebrate the New Year of the Trees, the 15th of Shvat, we are having an expert in Kabbalistic trees. And what is a Kabbalistic tree? It's a map of the Svirot, the emanations from the infinite to this world, including different characteristics that are essential to the functioning of the world. The Ilanot that Professor Chayas discusses in his book and has beautiful pictures of in his book are parchment sheets that present these Kabbalistic trees of life. And they've been at the center of mystical practice for 700 years. These are gorgeous maps of god of the divine realms and we'll be getting into a little bit today what they were used for what they might be used for uh, what exactly they are when did they begin to be used the book documents when where why jews began to visualize and draw the mystical shapes of the divine as this sort of tree which is technically called a porphyrian tree. If you're unable to or haven't bought the book, you can see what some of these Ela notes, some of these Kabbalistic trees look like if you look on the website elanote.org, which was created by Professor Chayas and his colleagues, I-L-A-N-O-T dot O-R-G. It's going to be a wonderful conversation and... As we sort of ran out of time during our conversation, this will be the first of at least two, if not more, conversations, if I can convince him to speak to me several times. But for today, uh, we have our initial conversation in honor of the New Year of the Trees, which happened this past week. Let's begin. Welcome, Professor Chayas to the Neshama Project. It's so great to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, so this is, we're recording in, in honor of the Hebrew month of Shvat and uh, our celebration of trees. 
So I thought, what better scholar to have on than the author of the Kabbalistic tree? Uh, and uh, I just wanted to start in the same way that I've been starting my interviews, which is to ask you, how did you initially become interested in Kabbalah? Ah, not the question I was expecting, but and uh, um, uh, possibly a, a question that would take more time to answer than you you have allotted for the entire podcast. But I'll try and make it really short. Um, I did have a, a reasonably good Jewish background as a kid. I went to a Schechter school um, before transferring to a public high school, but was quite alienated from uh, from Judaism, probably as a result of my Jewish education. That's at least how it seemed to me at the time. And when I experienced something of a spiritual awakening unexpectedly toward the end of my high school years, I remember, spe I remember specifically thinking, well, I know something about Judaism, and I know Judaism doesn't have a spiritual component, so I better look elsewhere. And that's uh, when I started kind of acquiring a library of sacred scripture from cultures around the world and reading uh, widely in spiritual literature, uh, particularly uh, uh, enjoyed at that time reading translations of classical um, works, I think the, the Vedas and Upanishads and sutras of various sorts, um, and the Gnostic Gospels, whatever I could get my hands on, but not really Judaism and its texts. And it got to the point that uh, I had a shelf of sacred literature in my dorm room at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and on the, the I had this. Uh, shelf of sacred works and they were all pretty much Eastern except that I had the Hertz Chumash that I had received as a bar mitzvah gift from my synagogue and I you know I did I had to put it somewhere and I put it on that shelf and I'll never forget the day that um, seemingly for no reason I pulled it off the shelf and the book opened like a bi bibliomantic style to the reading for Shavuot, the uh, first chapter of Ezekiel, Ezekiel's chariot vision. And I began reading and, and saying to myself, how is it possible that I don't know about this? How did it happen that I was completely unaware of the existence of this document, of this testimony, and it's in my tradition? And that is a, you know, is a moment that, that stays with me as a, as a kind of uh, turning point. From, from that point on, I realized that I, I hadn't been given the the whole story, uh, despite how relatively good my Jewish education had been as a young person growing up. And I took it upon myself to begin exploring um, the mysteries of the Jewish tradition. And luckily, I had some basic skills that made it just a bit easier to get started. My Hebrew wasn't too bad. I, you know, I could, I could 
you know, make sense of things with, uh, with much less effort than would have, than would have been necessary had I been absolutely at, at, you know, at zero when, when I began heading down this path. And I also felt, um, very happy that, uh, by being able to explore this path, I could somehow uh, continue a tradition that my my father had always drummed into me, and that was that the highest family is a family of rabbis and scholars and, and pietists. Um, and you know that that there is something. Uh, something about that, that, that resonates with me. You know, I, 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 I knew that, uh, that the other traditions that I was looking into were however fascinating, uh, not, not my own. And they never were going to be my own in quite the same way that would be the case where I define my spiritual home within the Jewish tradition. So, um, so this is a story that it, happened around uh, the you know the end of my teenage years at the beginning of college around around age 18 and I began studying a lot um, that year was also the year of my ex experimentation with psychedelics and uh, that was a meaningful part of the work that I was doing at the time I took them quite seriously um, you know I had uh, a very good friend Don Harrison a lava shalom who uh, who would sit with me, and we had a copy of uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead that was adapted by Timothy Leary um, and uh, Ramdas, if I recall correctly, to uh, to guide people through the Bardo states of their trips, and uh, that even generated for a short period of time some sense of. Uh, perhaps wrongdoing or an inadequacy, I thought that maybe the fact that I had experimented with psychedelics around the time that I was beginning my study of Kabbalah somehow invalidated the work that I was doing. And, uh, and after that really dramatic first year of college, when all this was happening, I took a year off, went out to L.A., and just got a job as a construction worker for a while. And then I worked in a camera store. But while I was doing this, I was going to talk to rabbis in LA who were recommended to me. And, and the two people that gave me the most help were um, Jonathan Omerman and Richard Levy. And I remember specifically Richard Levy saying to me, Yossi, you know, how many people around the world have taken psychedelics. And I said, okay, probably a lot of people. And he said, and how many of them are really into studying Kabbalah now? <laughs> and I said, I don't know, maybe, if, you know, I don't know exactly how many. He said, but, but he said, listen, you're not, you're not doing what you're doing because of those things. You, you, you are experimenting with psychedelics for the same reason that you're studying Kabbalah because of your um, devotional uh, drive and your spiritual curiosity and, you know, just you're okay. Stay on the path, you know, it's going to, it'll be, it'll be okay. And, uh, he put those insecurities of a 19 year old to rest. And, um, and I've, I've been at it really ever since the only, the only really significant development I think that's worth mentioning is that at some point 
I felt like I had to choose between becoming a Kabbalist and becoming a, a an academic scholar of Kabbalah. And, uh, and, and the story that sort of epitomizes that moment for me is when I was just a, about a year or so after the events that I've just shared, I was in Jerusalem and living in, in the Shuk area and uh, discovered a Kabbalistic shul where I shouldn't, it was a, not, uh, it was Sephardic, so probably somewhat strange for me to call it a shul, but your listeners will know what I mean. A Sephardic synagogue where an elderly Kabbalist was teaching the students at the yeshiva how to daven from the Rashash Sidur. So the curriculum really of this yeshiva was, was Kabbalah, the prayer with the Kavanot, very technical Lurianic Rashash school, Shalom Sharabi school, Kavanot. And I was going there quite regularly and at some point got the courage up to go speak to the elderly Kabbalist and, and to introduce myself and to ask him whether I could become one of his students. And it seems that he had gotten wind of the fact that I was spending my, my days at Mount Scopus taking Kabbalah classes with the various folks who were at the time teaching in the Jewish thought department. And he said, yes, I will teach you the Kavanot, but on condition that you stop going to Hebrew University, you have to abandon the academic study of Kabbalah, which I had only just begun. I was literally taking uh, Rivka Schatz's Mavole Kriya Besefera Zohar, Introduction to Reading the Zohar that semester. But I, I felt like this was like a shmad. You know, I felt like he was giving me an ultimatum, and I don't like ultimatums. Uh, you know, any, as any of my ex-wives will tell you, reverse psychology works like a dream on me. Uh, but, <laughs> so that was, the, that was pretty much the end of that. Like he, wow. you know, he said, you got to give up academia. So what did I, of course, I gave up, I gave up the, you know, the immersion in that world of practicing non-academic Kabbalists and um, moved my, moved myself over to, to the academic world. Um, and wow. And I guess the only final thing that I would add to round out the picture is that I never became a 100% academic machine. The fact that I'm telling you uh, on the record about some of these things should be proof enough of that. But um, it was roughly around that time that I met Shlomo Karlbach for the first time. And uh, it didn't take too long for me to appreciate uh, Shlomo as a spiritual teacher and as a, as a Torah teacher and a spiritual teacher. And the fact that I had come from a musical family and was a pretty accomplished pianist as a young man made it easy for me to suggest myself uh, as a potential accompanist. And I ended up uh, touring a lot with Shlomo as a, basically as a way of spending time with him because I found, um, I found him as a teacher of Torah to be uh, extraordinary and on a level that was different than anything I'd ever experienced before. And I think it's fair to say decades later, anything I've ever experienced since. So, but, so there was still that ongoing spiritual um, investment and, and, and engagement, but it, it stayed fairly separate from my academic work. I never, for example, did much in the way of 
the academic study of Hasidism. One of the reasons was that I, I liked keeping that as my private realm. And, and um, not that I'm afraid to subject something to scrutiny, but I liked having something that was just my own and, and not, you know, not, not work Torah. So, yeah, there's a, a long answer to your question. No, it's a great answer. And um, it sort of touches on one of the themes that I asked Daniel Matt about when I spoke to him, which is how to balance the academic and the spiritual uh, study of Kabbalah. And I think you sort of lived that, which is really interesting. Um, and I I would... I In our conversation of the Elon Note, I'd love to hear your take on if there is any spiritual practical application of these Ilanot for us today. Um, but first, before we get into that, can you just say a little bit about how you got into studying the Ilanot? Sure. Um, it was, it was by accident um, because like everyone else in the field and uh, perhaps also just about everybody else out of the field, I had no idea uh, what Ilanot were until uh, it, until they came to my attention roughly a dozen years ago, and, which is really an extraordinary thing. Uh, I spent years working on my dissertation in the Sholem Library in, in, in Jerusalem, like uh, almost every scholar of Kabbalah does. And uh, when you approach that uh, library, you see uh, wallpapered Ilanot everywhere as you enter the room, inside the room. Um, so the Ilanot were being used as decoration <laughs> in the space that I was spending uh, years of my life. And yet um, they were kind of invisible, eye candy, the same way you might see them on the covers of books um, or occasionally even as illustrations within books um, and without exception, uh, never touched upon by uh, the authors of the books themselves that feature these images as eye candy. So uh, the accident was as simple as uh, a Shabbat lunch invitation to a good old pal's house in Jerusalem, Menachem Kalus, who's uh, another person who straddles um, many worlds. Menachem grew up uh, is the, in a, in a Munkach, Munkach Hasidic family and got his education in Chabad schools and eventually studied anthropology in the, in the new school and, and, and to make a long story short, became a PhD student of Moshe Edel's and wrote a very important, though extremely difficult to read dissertation on the Kavanot of Lurianic, of the Lurianic tradition. And uh, Menachem did not get a job after finishing his PhD. Um, and it was something that was always difficult for me to deal with because I felt like, um, you know, I was his Talmud Chaver. He really uh, was very instrumental in helping me uh, get a handle on the field when I was just getting started. Um, so he invited me to his house for lunch and I saw that he had all these photocopies all over his desk um, and I didn't know what they were. 
And he tells me, oh, these are Elan Note. They're from William Gross's collection. William Gross is a, a big Judaica collector who's based in uh, North Tel Aviv. And uh, he's hired me to, to tell him what ideas are being visualized in these manuscripts that he's collected. And in fact, the, the backstory is that William Gross has for years opened up all of his many collections to academics who, uh, who use what he has and, and whom he gives always permission to publish what he has. But William was collecting Ilanot for about 40 years and asking academics if they were interested in them or if they could tell him anything about them. And the answer was always no. And finally, Moshe Idel told William that he should just hire Menachem Kalus to write something up, a kind of something catalog-like, just so that he would know what the ideas were that were being visualized in these artifacts. And that that was the best he could do, since there was absolutely no scholarship on them whatsoever. And that is true. There, if You won't find a word on Ilanot in the Encyclopedia Judaica and any of Sholem's writings, Edel's writings, Wolfson's writings. Um, so, you know, cutting back to the Shabbat lunch with Menachem, I looked at these things and asked him some questions. As soon as I realized that essentially I, we, we were dealing with an entire genre of Kabbalistic creative material that had never once been subject to, subject to basic research. Nobody knew the first thing about these, including Menachem at the time. He was just trying to make some sense of the ideas that he was seeing uh, mostly in the texts of the Ilanot in William's collection. But you know, nobody could say uh, where were they from, when did, who started making them, what Kabbalists made them, how were they used. The, there wasn't a question that had been asked and certainly not a question that had been answered. So, um, you know, what I do better than Menachem is not no Kabbalah, but know how to function in the academic world. So I said to Menachem that very day, okay, pal, I'm writing up a proposal for the Israel Science Foundation. If I win it, you get the postdoc, you have Parnassa. I'll pay you a salary. You keep doing what you're doing. I'll start getting my feet wet and trying to understand what these things are. And that, uh, that you know, the rest, the rest is history. I got that grant. Menachem and I worked alone for, for three, three or four years. Um, and and um, ultimately, I, I took on some additional postdocs, uh, including doctors Eliezer Baumgarten and Uri Safrai, and more recently, Hannah Gentili, um, and, and others as well. And the, so the project has really uh, blossomed. And now we're at a you know, kind of a critical crossroads. We have on elanote.org, we have a nearly complete uh, scientific digital editions of the classical elanote online. Uh, the major ones have also been fully translated into English, but the English hasn't been fully uploaded to the site, and the end user interface has not yet even been designed. But we keep the site open so that people who want to actually learn Ilanot by studying them have access to them. 
uh, with all of the extra functionality that we've baked into the site. And uh, what the site doesn't have is basically what my book has. The book that's just come out, The Kabbalistic Tree, is like the you know the A to Z guide to the donor. It's the it's uh, it's my attempt to uh, impose some order on the field. Uh, again, just reminding you there there was nothing known, so I had to first of all try and find what what I was able to find, and these things are notoriously poorly cataloged if they're cataloged at all in libraries and private collections around the world. And of course, you know, date the materials and, and, and make Seder just makes, bring some order to, to the field and, and identify the central issues and schools, um, uh, manuscript families. Uh, so, uh, you know, the book is my attempt to, um, to provide such a, a kind of ty a typological, chronological inventory of uh, what I know at this point about uh, about this genre, uh, to try not to make it too encyclopedic in the boring sense. It has some encyclopedic qualities uh, that were inescapable, but I still I still tried to bring uh, some life to it and. And whenever I could, be, especially because part of me is and always has been in the academic setting, a cultural historian, to bring um, that uh, energy to the work and, and that particularly finds expression in my interest in the backstories behind as many of the artifacts as I was able to, to discover something about, like who, who made them and... Uh, you know, and why. So the, uh, how are they, how are they viewed? How are they understood? How are they misunderstood? Um, all of the kinds of cultural historical questions that, that have interested me since my first book on, on spirit possession and exorcism still are fundamentally at work. Not, not only the, you know, the Kabbalah from the inside, but a kind of cultural historical semi, you know, anthropological approach to the subject. Um, and there's still lots to do. So we've, we've got the classical Ilanot up and running my book. In my book, I developed a whole uh, approach to understanding the, the Lurianic Ilan. And I hope that we'll secure funding soon to be able to implement that approach on the digital platform, elanote.org, to create um, editions that basically uh, show what it is uh, I explained in the book uh, in terms of the, the construction of the different Lurianic Elanote, but with the added value of allowing people to actually dive in and scroll and, and click and see transcriptions and translations and sources and you know, have the entire experience of immersion in the, in the Ilanot themselves. Beautiful. So I want to, uh, so since my podcast is, is generally about my tagline is spiritual tools for human thriving. Um, I want to, I, I could go in the whole direction of the history of these Ilanot, which is fascinating. And, and the idea that, um, 
it really didn't start until the 12th century in Sefer Habahir. I, I'm so fascinated by all of that, but I want to, I'm, we, it's more of a, in, sorry, no. so there, there isn't an Ilan in the, there isn't uh, an example of a drawing of an Ilan in the Bahir, but the Bahir is a, an important source for the, the tree as a, is a symbol in Kabbalah. Right. The idea that when I do make the spirit is a tree. Yeah. 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 Fair enough. Just without without the graphic aspect that's so central to the book that I wrote. The porf, porfir, porfir, how do you pronounce that? Porfir, porfir, the porfirian tree is the is the most famous info inf, um, infographic that the Kabbalists adopted from the scientific literature of their day. That and the concentric circles from astronomy were the two, they, these were the two dominant ways of visualizing the Sfirot. And as I say in the book, the concentric circles actually had a disadvantage because it was uh, the concentric circles in, a, in the astronomical, astrological tradition of the Middle Ages were meant to look like what they were representing in two dimensions. They represented the, the spheres. Whereas the Porphyrian tree was an infographic that was more like a Venn diagram in our own world, um, which could sh uh, visualize relations without the necessary implication of space. So for Jews concerned about uh, corporealizing the divine, the tree was actually a good bet, even though it sounds it sounds very physical. It's a tree, but the tree as a diagram is anything but physical. It's uh, what's above and below or right and left in a, in a family tree, for example, doesn't mean mom and dad are sitting on top of my head and my sister's on my left and my brother's on my right. It's just showing how the network of relations uh, works, you might say, uh, causally more than uh, spatially. So I, th I think it was actually an easier choice for the Kabbalists to go with the tree than it was to go with the concentric circles for that reason. And yeah. the, the Ilan genre is when you take that diagram and put it on a large piece of parchment and then leverage the real estate offered by that parchment to provide entire introductions to Kabbalah to users um, and that's really the, the central function in my opinion a central function of the classical Ilan things change uh, with the Lurianic Ilan in the 17th century but you might need two podcasts to get through all this material I might I would love to interview you again I, I, what's coming to mind is the, the Ilan HaChochma uh, from the uh, 13th century Italy um, yes and it's like got like an X axis, a Y axis and a Z, you know, and it's all, it's all Sefer Yitzirah completely in graphical format. Anyway. So, so I, I want to get back to that question. Um, I mean, there's so much I could ask you and I could probably talk to you for hours at this point, but you know, we only have a very limited time. So I wanted to first say beyond just a graphical representation and a way to, to introduce to Kabbalah, is there another function? Is there a spiritual function of these Elon note? And, and uh, I want to touch a little bit on your background with Eastern uh, philosophy and the idea of a mandala 
um, and that's sort of the obvious place that my mind goes with these Ilanot. Is there any relationship there? Is there any spiritual function to these Ilanot in your in your uh, estimation? Yes. Um, well, these are multi-function uh, artifacts. They don't do just one thing, uh, which shouldn't surprise us because usually, usually uh, that's the case with complex things. Um, and also there isn't one answer that's right for all of the Ilanot. Just remember that we're talking about a genre that spans from the 14th century to the 21st century, if you like. And uh, there's classical Kabbalah and Luriana Kabbalah and different, there's so many different kinds that it's hard to make one statement that's true about all of them. But I want to say a couple of things really as efficiently as possible. The first is that, to my mind, the very fact that we're talking about um, a work that's on parchment is meaningful. And it's meaningful because by the time Jews were making Ilanot, anything they put on parchment was a ritual object that was intended for performance or enactment, whether that's a Torah scroll, a mezuzah, tefillin, megillat stair. Jews study from codices in the Middle Ages, from books that look very much like the printed paper books that we still have on our shelves, I hope. Um, when something's on a scroll, uh, it means it is a ritual object. Um, so, so the next question is, well, what's the ritual? So what, how do you perform an Ilan? How do you en enact an Ilan? And there, I think the honest answer is um, there are some differences. I think that the main enactment of the classical Ilan is twofold. On the one hand, it's, it's a kind of pedagogical enactment because most of the classical Ilanot um, provide basic orientation to this to the Sfirot. In fact, the most common genre of medieval Kabbalah is the introduction to the ten Sfirot, Perushe Eser Sfirot. If you just look at the number of treatises uh, of that uh, uh, of, uh, in Kabbalah produced in the Middle Ages, you'll see that the number of introductions to the Sfirot out, outnumber uh, probably the rest of them put together. So one way of packaging introductions to the Sfirot was via the Ilan. And um, in fact, it's not necessarily the case that someone wrote an introduction to the Sfirot and then someone else came with scissors and cut it up into bits and then pasted it onto a parchment. But it's often quite obviously the reverse, that a person set out from the beginning to create an Ilan where the information about the Sfirot was located in meaningful places on the map, as it were. And then occasionally you find uh, that scribes copying from an Ilan into a codex. So many of the Ilanot have reached us in this form that I sometimes refer to as a deconstructed, a deconstructed Ilan, where the, uh, the parchment has, so to speak, been cut into pieces and structured linearly in a treatise. So, um, so one aspect is pedagogical, but 
you have to remember that even as far as uh, Rabbi Moses Cordovero was concerned, the main the the main thing that a person was trying to attain through acquiring. Uh, an understanding of the spherotic system was how to how to pray as a Kabbalist and how to use the tree of spherot as the structure within which one operated as one proceeded in the path on the path of prayer. So, you know, uh, the Ramak even in one place voiced a, 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 a concern that since students of Kabbalah were being introduced to the structure of the divine through these gr graphical artifacts called Ilanot, were they therefore going to be introducing Hagshama or corporalization uh, into the, their spiritual work when they began praying as Kabbalists? And then he you know, basically provides a reassuring response and says, no, it's okay, really, it's not Judaism is full of these cases uh, where spiritual things are are, are um, in material vessels. I think you know something like along those lines. He puts it. And just one more word about the classical Elan. I think that because they are map-like, uh, one other aspect of their performance was through a, a kind of contemplation that you might compare to a mandala, as you suggested, but could actually be compared to, to any pre-modern um, image, and especially a map-like image. And I say uh, pre-modern specifically to flag this very common notion that an image is capable of making present that which it represents. So if a Jew is sitting in, uh, in Florence and has an image of Jerusalem or a map of the Holy Land on the wall, that image is making present that which is pictured uh, for that person. And so... I think one thing that you could compare it to in our age is a kind of virtual reality. It's not a Google map that you fire up to go from point A to point B, but um, uh, uh, an invitation to a kind of uh, sacred imaginative journey. Uh, whether whether you want to put the emphasis more on on the presence of that image of the divine. Uh, here with the, with the contemplative or the contemplative joining through the sacred imagination, uh, the divine as pictured in the image. Okay, that's like, you know, the flip side of the same coin. But that's the, that I think is the performative work uh, of the classical Ilan. And with regard to the Lurianic Ilan, it's very interesting. I, I dedicate a huge part of the book to the Lurianic Ilan for many reasons, but the, the, the Lurianic Ilan is a kind of, uh, re it's an appropriation of the genre to do rather different work than was required of the Ilan in the classical period. As anyone who knows a bit of Kabbalah is surely aware, Lurianic Kabbalah is crazy complicated. And uh, so pedagogy remained a problem. And in fact, I think pedagogy was even a greater problem for Luriana Kabbalists who were concerned with introducing students to this lore than it ever had been for the classical Kabbalists. So I think that the Luriana Ilan maintains 
that aspect of uh, a teaching tool. But um, unlike the classical Elan, it, it doesn't suffice with just a kind of snapshot of the 10 spherot tree, but rather uh, provides a moving picture. It's a dynamic flow of images that typically begins uh, in the most common forms uh, with the head of Adam Kadmon and then moves through the so-called partsufim or divine personae that are at the heart of Lurianic um, cosmology and, the, and, and then even within that specifically details the interlocking relationships between those divine personae or partsufim and uh, mainly because, first of all, that's the way they understand the emanatory chain and it's working. Um, um, and that's what students of Luriana Kabbalah need to visualize very clearly, how the higher levels of divinity become enclosed, mitlabshim, in the lower, in their lower analogs. Um, but to my mind, the, the kind of participatory spiritual practice that the Lurianic Ilan invites is um, the, the scrolling, literally the scrolling from top to bottom, uh, or yeah, let's just say from top to bottom of these, uh, of these Ilanot. The Ilanot are presenting an idealized picture of the whole emanatory sequence when scrolled in a state of, of uh, contemplation, I believe that the presumption is that one experience oneself through a kind of sacred identification. Um, one experiences oneself as participating in the unfolding of divinity through its levels. And that is a kind of uh, uh, tikkun work that you could say is uh, presumed really to, uh, to, be, to be what's, what's happening when one is making this, uh, making this happen, when one is doing this work. I will say about the mandala question and, and also to kind of raise an objection against myself, that it's not quite as simple as stare and scroll. And it's not quite so simple because uh, both classical and Lurianic Ilanot can be text heavy in a way that I've never seen uh, in um, a Buddhist mandala, for example. In fact, I'm not sure I'm familiar with any comparable uh, mystical artifact um, from other traditions that are as text heavy, leave it to the Jews, right? As text heavy as Ilanot. I, I use the term in my book, Iconotext, to describe Ilanot. 
uh, because iconotext is a term that was developed to, to refer to artifacts in which the text and the images can't really be separated from each other. They're indivisible and, and, and completely enmeshed in the work that they're doing. But even in the literature that I was inspired by and uh, from, from where I took the term, they don't have anything that's as complicated and iconotext as a typical Ilan, where um, you, you, you could, of course, scroll through these things and let them pass before your eyes without getting stuck on every letter and every word. But there's no question that the people who created them uh, put, put the texts in there because they thought that they were going to be studied at some level. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, so the Jews didn't come up with uh, a, 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 an exclusively, um, you know, diagrammatic presentation of 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 the uh, divine world, um, and uh, and felt obliged apparently to to bring the bring the book to the image. So. Um, you know, in the, to the best of my recollection, the, the wordiest Elan has about 33,000 words of text. Um, and so I, I think that that, you know, that it certainly complicates our notion of, of what it, what it would mean to, to use these things as part of one's spiritual practice. It's not just stare and, space out, you know, or stare and imagine oneself participating in tikkun. It's not Jewish meditation, light, L-I-T-E. This is a full-blown, like you got to read Kabbalistic texts and you have to um, you let your imagination loose too in, in, in uh, visualizing whatever realms are being diagrammed that can, for example, take the form of uh, occasionally remapping in one's own mind a two-dimensional image and creating a kind of three-dimensional space in one's imagination. So there's uh, they leave a lot of work for the practitioner. How much people today will find these things useful in their own spiritual practice is a, is a hard question for me to answer. Um, they're old school and, um, you know, the people who today study in Jerusalem, for example, at, uh, at old, old school Kabbalistic yeshivot are still involved in the, in the making of and use of Ilanot. Will the readers of my book in the States uh, all of a sudden be inspired to adopt these as part of their practice? is a harder question because, you know, in my experience um, of the scene in the States, having grown up here and lived a good part of my life here, there, 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 there isn't a huge market for that kind of investment. People tend to prefer, you know, Vipassana retreat with some Hebrew words. Um, that's maybe a bit too snarky way of yeah, putting it. In all seriousness, I think there's definitely some truth to that. 
these Elanote require a fair amount of study and hard work to even access. So perhaps they'll become part of uh, spiritual practice for Jews in the States, and perhaps not. We'll see. Uh, maybe there'll be some way that they can be integrated. Uh, creativity of American Jewish spirituality is boundless from what I've seen. So I'm sorry to cut our interview short. Uh, I know our time was limited today. Um, would you be up for doing this again sometime soon? To do part one, part two, part three, let's as go, you let's wish. Let's consider this part one. Thank you so much, Professor Chayas. I really appreciate your time today. And I look forward to the next time we speak. This has been a wonderful conversation. And if uh, anybody out there wants to purchase the Kabbalistic Tree book, uh, Professor Chayas has let me know that if you go to the Ilanote, the publisher's website for the Kabbalistic Tree, which is psupress.org slash books slash titles 9780271093451 and enter a code, a capital I-L-A-N-O-T, you'll get 30% off, which I think is pretty significant because it's a $100 book, so that's 30 bucks off. So if you're interested, um, feel free. Otherwise, you can see pictures of the Elanote on elanote.org.org, as Professor Chayes told us, and as I said at the beginning of this podcast. So thank you, everybody, for joining me today. This has been the Neshama Project podcast. Until next time, happy birthday to the trees. Take care. <laughs>